of you this morning. I know I say that every week, but it's true. It just is. Uh, This is the second week of Advent. Advent is a season where the the church has set aside this time as a time to sit together and consider our present longings in light of the promises that God has given us that lie behind Jesus's arrival, which we're going to celebrate here in just a few weeks. And, And for this season, what we're doing is we're taking a look at four of our favorite Advent hymns that we sing during this time. And we're examining the biblical truth that lie behind the formation of those hymns. And this week's hymn, which you just heard Jeff sing the first verse of, is uh, one of our older hymns. Uh, it, It has its roots all the way back in the 12th century in the Latin liturgies of a, of a mass service. And so it would have been chanted or uh, for a time it was a responsive reading and there were several edits along the way that reveal the hymn that's before you this morning. And whereas last week, uh, last week's hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, was set in the voice of a first century believing Jew, someone who might have been around during the time of Jesus or shortly after, this week's hymn is best understood as set in the voice of a Jew who is in exile. So you have that poignant line in the first verse, come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 11, what Isaiah is doing, he's he's speaking to people who have real concerns. There is a a rising threat of Assyria on the world stage, and the Israelites, uh, specifically the Judeans in this passage, are facing the very real prospect of their own exile. And so this passage would have come to them as they were thinking of this. It certainly would have been carried with them as a source of hope uh, amidst all of their longings, as a source of hope amidst the darkness. And one of the things I want you to see when we look at this is the ways that God is already predetermined to attend to the people that he loves in the midst of their deep longings and their deep suffering. Let's look together. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 11. I'll read 11 through 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. And Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of this people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. And Father, we're gathered here before you this morning. You have assembled us. We... Uh, We sit under the authority and the goodness of your word, and we pray that you would bless us, that you would speak to us in ways that we really need to hear, that you would apply the truth, help us to understand the truth behind these promises, and give us a fresh glimpse of the ways that all of our longings and desires find resolution in you, Lord Jesus. So be among us, help us, please help me to love these people well, to speak boldly and yet gently. And help me to honor you with the things that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some years ago, a friend introduced me to a concept called the Abilene Paradox. Kind of looking around. Okay. So um, this was coined by a management theorist back in 1974, if you can believe it. And it has its roots in a really interesting story. It's a story about a family that was gathered together. 
perhaps during the holidays, I don't know, but they're sitting, um, they're sitting on the front porch and they're playing dominoes. And, uh, and as the story goes, everybody's happy, okay? Everybody's happy in those moments and they're just enjoying being with each other uh, on a hot afternoon in Texas when the dad, it's always, it's always the dad, the, da- the dad makes a suggestion that, uh, hey, how about we all go to Abilene for dinner together? Now, um, that's a long and hot drive on a long and hot afternoon. And according to them, the food in Abilene is not all that good. And nobody thinks this is a good idea, okay? Just everybody thinks about this and says, I don't want to do that. Um, but, if, but, but a strange thing happens. Um, uh, one person, not wanting to disagree, immediately says, yes, we should definitely do that. I would love to do that. And the third person uh, doesn't want to be disagreeable and, uh, and agrees that, uh, to go to make this trip to Abilene for dinner. And then finally, a fourth person who senses the forming of a social conviction uh, decides to go along. And so four of them load up in a car and make uh, the long drive that nobody wants to go on. And uh, they eat a dinner that nobody enjoys. And they come back and uh, they all sit around talking when somebody says, why did we just do that? I mean, it wasn't until they all came home where everybody decided that, uh, that nobody wanted to do it. And even the dad was like, I just thought y'all were bored and I, made, I suggested it, but I was kind of surprised when y'all said uh, you wanted to go. And thus was born the Abilene Paradox, which was a way of trying to unpack how people might act against their true desires. It's a, a way of trying to identify one of the ways in which some of the longings of our heart or our true desires remain buried and unspoken and hidden from other people. And it was given to, to people, especially people with, an, with some kind of authority, uh, as a tool encouraging them to really dig in, to really dig in and, and see what's going on in someone's heart and in someone's head. Because the truth is, often our true desires remain hidden, don't they? Like often we have longings of the heart that we carry around that we might be reluctant to share with people, even people that we trust. Nobody wants to be seen as needy. Nobody wants to be known as a complainer. And it can be a very vulnerable thing to share these things that might go unanswered or unmet to other people. So let me just ask you a vulnerable question. Is it possible that this is true of you? Is it possible that you have unspoken or unanswered or unmet longings of the heart that remain buried, that might even be hard for you to even think about? Is, that, is it possible that you're afraid of being seen as needy before other people? Or maybe even needy before God. One of the things I love about this hymn, and and I think you probably do too, is that it just simply assumes that the people who sing it have deep longings of the heart that have been unanswered. That this is a hymn composed in ancient poetry that captures some of the deepest longings that we have 
And it tells us that your neediness and your longings are welcome here. And as we look at Isaiah chapter 11, one of the things I just want you to see is that God is already at work in profound ways in answering some of the deepest longings of our hearts. I'm going to articulate three ways that we see it here in passage. I know it's a shocker, three, I have three for you. Uh, But here they are. I'm going to say that Jesus answers some of the deepest longings of our heart by, by describing for us a king, a healer, and a gatherer. A king, a healer, and a gatherer. First, a king. Now, why is this a big deal? What we have here in the first five verses, first five verses of the passage are the description of an ideal king. And why is this important? Well, all over, but you know, you see it in first and second kings, you see that a lot of ink is spilled on the state of the king in relationship to the flourishing of, uh, of God's people. You see it uh, in a lot of ways. There's examinations of certain decisions the king made Uh, what the affections of the king looked like. Most importantly, the king and his relationship to the Lord, his willingness to seek guidance from him and actually follow the will of the Lord, lead his people in the way of the Lord. And God is telling us something really important in these stories. What he's telling us is that as the king goes, so go the people. That the Bible draws a direct line of sight between the health an overall um, relationship of the king to, to God and the flourishing of the people. That when the king is wise and following the Lord with a heart for the Lord, that the people do well. And that when the people are suffering in some way, one of the things you'll see is that the king is foolish or ignoring the Lord in a lot of ways. And you'll often see this sad refrain, uh, but so-and-so insert any one of the bad kings of Israel, Uh, but so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he made Israel to sin. And so the role, the functioning of the king is vital when just understanding the life of God's people. And here we see in this passage that God is making the promise that you will flourish one day because I am sending to you an ideal king. That's what he's giving us. In this passage, look how he describes them. In verse 2, we see that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This would evoke memories of past leaders uh, who delivered Israel during especially dark times, that Moses and Joshua and David were all said to be endowed with a special giving of the Spirit of the Lord. And because of this, we see in this passage that he has all the tools to rule the people well. It talks a lot about how discerning he is. And we hear that he is a king who is wise and understanding. And when hearing testimony, he can discern the difference between appearance and reality. That this is is someone who can look at difficult situations and hear testimony and really understand what's going on in this passage. He has a passion for justice, it tells us. That he decides with equity for the meek of the earth. And he's also trustworthy. His words matter. When he speak, speaks, he means what he says. And that the tools of freedom that he employs are simply the words that he uses, simply his voice, the rod of his mouth is what he says. And so he's trustworthy, implicitly. 
And I suppose one of the things I want you to see is that a wise, discerning, and powerful king is one of the answers to some of our deepest longings. And I know, uh, I know, boy, I had, uh, I had lunch a couple weeks ago with a pastor, and he told me, hey, just a word to the wise, keep politics out of the pulpit, just do it. And I know you all are afraid, but I'm not going to, um, I'm, I'm going to try not to step in it with you. But that's a very difficult conversation for us, isn't it? Like, it can be hard for us to talk about those things. Keep it out of family conversations in the holidays, right? I suspect, I I think, that it's actually gotten harder in recent years. But I'll just make this observation. When I talk to people, or when I hear from people, or when I uh, see what people write, often I hear this longing for a political candidate, a leader, that I can just trust. Someone whose words I trust. That when they speak... I, uh, I believe what they're saying, or I believe they believe what they're saying. I, I'm, I'm longing for someone who seems wise and discerning, who has character, somebody that I trust. And the biblical proposition to you, and I want you to hear this morning, is that God is already arranging a place of perfect rule, of perfect peace, of perfect justice in the person of Jesus. That, that, that longing of our hearts is found here and nowhere else. That's where it's found. That you are right now being ruled. And there will be a time when the king comes back and establishes his rule forever. That's what we're longing for. And that's what's promised to us here in this passage. And that's just where the passage goes. And it's here that we see further assurances of what his rule will look like. And over the next, in the next section of the passage, what we see is that God's promise is is that when Jesus comes, when this ideal comes, that he will heal what is broken, that he is fundamentally a healer of a broken world. Now, why is that important to us? Well, when God created the world, he looked at it, and he said it was good, that when he created it and he established the world, he looked at it and said it was very good. He said, when he, and, and what he did was it was characterized by a peace, that all the relationships that existed during that time were perfect. And he looked at Adam and Eve and he told them to rule over it. He told them to exercise dominion. And listen, there was no fear. In the, because the relationship between man and man, between man and God, between man and creation was all perfect. And when sin entered the world, all of those relationships were violated. And the curse extended not just to our relationships with each other or our relationships with ourselves or our relationship with God. One of the things the Bible tells us is that the curse actually extends into violating our relationship with creation itself. That God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And in Romans 8, Paul says that creation groans. And it's into this groaning that Isaiah's vision penetrates because what he is describing in this passage is so fascinating because he's describing a world that is thoroughly healed. So much so that you see predators and prey who would be avoiding each other, one person would be afraid of the other, are now able to lie down together without fear. And he even describes old natures being being changed, that, that, uh, that lions are now, instead of eating the ox, they're eating straw next to the ox. 
And he's describing real healing. Now, when you, listen, when you look at this passage, you could go a couple of ways with it. One, of, one way you could look at this, you could look at it and see it as a kind of holistic renewal of the created order that extends even into the animal kingdom. Okay, you could look at it that way. You could also read this and think this is symbolism for understanding the predatory imperial powers of the age. That, you know, Assyria might be a leopard or something like that. And there's merit behind both of those understandings. And, and one of the things, and I've wrestled with this over the last week, just trying to kind of figure out where I am on that. And you know what? I just don't think it's an either or. I actually think you can look at this and see that it's a both and. Why? Because what we see here are clearly meant to evoke in the Israelites memories of what Eden looked like. When God created the world, he created a garden. And, uh, and when Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed in a garden. And when Jesus uh, was crucified, he died and he was buried in a tomb that was in a garden. As the story goes, as the story goes, Mary goes to treat Jesus's body. And, uh, and when Jesus first spoke to her, she was afraid. Because why? Because she thought it was the voice of the gardener. And Mary has no idea how right she was because a gardener cultivates life in places of brokenness. A gardener is a healer. What does a gardener do? Think, a gardener leans into places of brokenness where there is a cursed ground and they treat it and they arrange it and they pull out weeds and they provide nourishment and life comes from it. And in Revelation 22, you see this vision of a city but it's a garden city. Why? Because the river of life is now flowing through it. And the tree of life is there again providing fruit. What is it providing fruit for? The passage says it provides fruit for the healing, for the healing of the nations. And so in this passage, one of the things I want you to see is that God is promising to us that he will send somebody who will heal everything that was violated. He is sending a healer. And Jesus is the one who is exercising dominion in exactly the places that we failed. That he's the new Adam. He's the perfect Adam who gives life to the world. And Jesus takes it on himself to heal what's broken about us in the world. Uh, a few years ago, I, I can't, I can't stop doing this. I had all my, all my stories that come into my head come from past family vacations. Uh, I'm sorry for that. Uh, but here's another one. Um, so it was a few years ago and I remember, uh, this because, uh, we were on a hike and Gavin was so small. He was in that little thing on my back and, uh, Trent, Trent was very small too. And, uh, and it was just a little family hike. And when you're doing family hikes with little kids, really, you're just laboring for some kind of future joy, right? Um, they, like, like uh, they, they can make you feel like you're taking them on a uh, forced march or something like that. And you're just hoping that one day they're going to enjoy this, right? And, uh, but we were going along, and Gavin's probably the happiest one there because uh, he's just sitting there. And uh, looking around, but Trent was running ahead of us. He was 
running down and kind of disappearing around the corner, and then he would wait, and we would catch up to him. And it was, it was not a big deal. Like, we, we thought that was totally fine. And uh, eventually, uh, a couple of older hikers, a couple of older dudes came up the other way. They were coming this way. And, you know, we're in our athletic shorts and sneakers. These were serious hikers, okay? They had the backpacks and, uh, and everything. You could see they were equipped for a lot of days in the woods. And, uh, you know, they came by. They were very friendly, said hi to everybody. And this older gentleman leaned close to me as he was passing. And he said, keep that boy close to you. He said, there are mountain lions around here, and he should not be alone. But if, 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 if a predator sees a small child away from his parents, he could be vulnerable. And what, what was he saying to me? I thanked him. Of course, he was right. But what was he saying to me in that moment? He was telling me that no matter how comfortable we might feel, that the world is still a dangerous place. And we all know that's true, don't we? One of the ways we know that's true is because how important security is for us, right? We take the idea of security very, very seriously. It's almost like a commodity to us. We are often constructing our lives in ways that might construct securities around us in so many ways. I mean, it influences how we choose the people that we want to be around. We kind of gravitate towards certain people. It influences how we choose uh, what we want to do for for work. It influences how we choose where we want to live. I've got a friend who's a financial advisor. And uh, when I'm in conversations with it, listen, if we had enough nickel for every time the word financial security got mentioned, I'd be financially secure, I think. And listen, all that's well and good. It's one of the longings of our hearts is that we would find a place of security. One of the things I want you to see in this passage is that all of our attempts at building security will just are hints at the security that God promises to us when Jesus comes and he heals the entire world. That actually the, the kind of security that we see here one where little children who are weak can play around a cobra's den. That's a promise of perfect security. Because Jesus will one day heal everything that's broken. He will one day recover everything that was lost. Listen, one of the chief assurances that God is at work healing the world is simply how he gathers his people up again. That's the last thing we see in this passage is that, is that we see Jesus, who is the root of Jesse, fulfill his desire to gather. Now, why is that important to us? Because one of the ways that God's people suffer is witnessed in just how divided they became over time. That when, when uh, God's people were moving into the promised land, they were one, there were 12 tribes, but they were one people under one uh, under one God, worshiping the same God. But even then, the seeds of division were already at work. That even then, things like jealousy and hostility and distrust were, were, were already taking root in God's people, and they were pulling away from each other during that time. And it, and it kind of reached a peak 
when Solomon died. And it was then that you see the kingdom actually split in two, with Israel, also known as Ephraim in this passage, being the northern kingdom, and Judah was the the southern kingdom. And their unity under God, here's what I want you to see, their unity under God was split. It was rendered simply because of sin. That there wasn't enough, something big enough to hold them together in their eyes. And so they split. And with the near threat of exile in this passage, what what we'll see is that God's people become scattered even more in foreign territories. And Isaiah's vision here tells us that there will come a time when Jesus raises a signal. Did you see that language in there? That's really important. That that a signal is going to come and he will create a highway from Assyria and they will all come back together. And, what he, and notice they said, it's, I'm going to do this a second time. And he includes all this imagery about the exodus, right? That, that a river is going to dry up and they're going to cross over the river wearing sandals. He's describing for us a second exodus where he gathers his people up again. And not only that, so he's going to defeat all of the powers that divide them, the external powers that divide them, but he's also going to defeat what is internally motivating them toward division. Do you see that? It said that Ephraim will no longer be jealous and Judah will no longer harass. He, he, he is doing work with both the, uh, the powers of opposition, but he's, doing, he's also doing business with the hearts of God's people. That the same thing, the same thing that, that, uh, that, that gives us peace in the world is the same thing that draws us toward each other. What does the hymn cry out for? Bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease and be thyself our king of peace. Listen, the only way this is possible, the only way this is possible is if uh, the, 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 the only way this longing of our hearts Uh, takes root and pulls us together is if something appears on the scene that is much bigger than the things that divide us from each other, right? The disciples are a really great example of this. I, I, I don't know how many times we've talked about this, but it's just awesome. Jesus assembled disciples that are diametrically opposed to each other, okay? He has a Roman sympathist and a tax collector, and he has a, 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 Judas zeal, uh, sorry, a Jewish zealot who is probably doing everything he can, including terrorist actions, to, harm the, to, 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 uh, to do battle with the Roman occupation. Now, why in the world could they exist in relative peace with each other? Because of their loyalty to Jesus. Their loyalty to Jesus and their affections for Jesus were so strong that they could put away these lesser things. And that's, it. that's the way it works. That Jesus draws us together with each other because he's drawing us toward himself. And there's a story in Matthew 24 where Jesus begins to speak about a time that's coming. And what he's doing is he's describing a time in the future. He's describing, literally, he's describing the second advent. What what we're celebrating now is the first advent when Jesus comes. But Jesus describes the second advent. And he describes a time when there will appear in heaven the sign 
a signal of the Son of Man, and all will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And it says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his people from one end of heaven to another. Jesus is a gatherer of his people, and he does business with the things that separate us. And I don't know about you, but I feel the affections of the, or the effects of division every day. Like I just feel the fragmentation. I can feel it in my own heart, as my own impulses to pull away from people that I think you know are maybe just difficult to be around, or people that just seem like they love to disagree with me, or you know people that have done a lot better than me. You know, there are sinful impulses that have to that have to be uh, that have to be dealt with that create division. But also there are things around us that are creating division with each other, right? And I think it's just become so easy to pull away and to divide, to divide ourselves. But listen, the hope of Jesus is that the very thing that heals our divisions with each other is also the thing that heals our divisions with him. That when Jesus goes to the cross, he is doing battle with the toxic forces at work in our hearts and around us, healing those things. And you see evidence of that in a shared unity amongst God's people, a sweet shared unity under a king who is characterized by peace. A friend of mine likes to say when Jesus first comes, he makes our story his And that when he comes again, the second advent, he makes his story ours. And if you're ever wondering what that thing is that's big enough, that's powerful enough to overcome the divisive spirit of the age, God is telling us that in this passage that we just don't have to look any further. That is found right here in the person of Jesus. The resolution of all of our longings are found right there. There's a sweet line in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. He puts these words in the, in the character of Queen Lucy. And it's just perfect. I'm so glad he gave this line to her. But she said, a stable once had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. And I think we could look at that and say back to her, Queen Lucy, yes, you are right. What was in that little stable was the answer to everything that we long for. Amen. Thanks be to God. Oh, Jesus, our heart's desire, you are the one who came, and we live in waiting at the time when you come again. So I pray that you would hold us in faith, hold us in trust, hold us in love, Bid our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace. Be our helper and our friend. Give us uh, ever-growing affections for you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.